The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my new friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. Where's my rifle? Where's my gun? This is for Biden. This is for Firearms Friday. Yeah, baby. Firearms Friday. Your chance to sound off on issues of a 2A nature right here on The Michael Duke Show. The Friday edition of the show, every every week we spend uh, a little bit of time going over all of the good stuff, so to speak, in regards to firearms, the Second Amendment, gun discussions, and everything else. Today is no different. Um, of course, this short week, oh, nothing better than a short week after a long weekend, right? I told my wife, I said, how can I get a three-day work week every week? Well, maybe I could... Maybe I could become a writer or something and uh, and do that, right? I mean, we'll find out. J.D. Tuchelli may tell us that that's his regular work week here in just a minute. In fact, J.D. Tuchelli is going to be joining us here in just a hot second. Uh, he is a former uh, 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 managing editor for Reason Magazine, now a contributing editor, uh, and he has written uh, some pieces here recently. We just had him on not too long ago. I don't normally like to bug those guys too much because they're pretty busy, but he has this great article talking about the growing ranks of gun owners and why the newbies, even though their political affiliations run the gamut more towards the moderate, middle, and even sometimes liberal side of the spectrum, are hesitant to talk to the powers that be or to anonymous strangers uh, on the telephone about surveys and gun ownership and everything else. Uh, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating look at how gun ownership is evolving in America. And uh, I want to talk with him about that here in just a hot second. Let me uh, first just give you a rundown for the show here this morning. Got a bunch of stories, including um, a discussion on some of the things that happened over the 4th of July weekend, that shooting in Philadelphia, where the shooter apparently was a cross-dressing BLM activist. Uh, He was a BLM activist, also supported Donald Trump, also was a cross-dresser, and now allegedly has said that his whole point in doing the shooting was to um, uh, bring about, uh, he wanted to address gun violence uh, and bring that to the, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's just, it's pretty crazy. Pretty damn crazy. Uh, Also, of course, uh, some of the different discussions about uh, Democratic laws, Gavin Newsom's amendment plan, which many of us uh, agree, I think, is just a political stunt to gain uh, some eyeballs onto his possible presidential campaign. Uh, the, there's, there's so many stories, so many stories. We're also going to open up the phone lines an hour or two. And then as usual, we'll finish up the Friday show with Willie Waffle from wafflemovies.com who comes on to talk about entertainment movies. I always like to leave us on a little bit of a high note, just to, you know, just to kind of, 
shake the stuff off for the week and uh, and go into the weekend on a positive note. Uh, all right, so that's uh, that's pretty much everything we're going to. Uh, that's pretty much everything we're going to talk about today, right? So let's get right into it. Get right into it. Uh, joining us uh, on the line right now uh, from an undisclosed secret location in uh, in Arizona is our friend J.D. Tuchilli from Reason Magazine, who comes on to talk with us today about uh, his latest article in Reason, uh, which is called The Ranks of Gun Owners Grow, and So Does the Resistance to Scrutiny. J.D. Tuchilli, uh, good morning, my friend. How are you doing? How, how's, how's your weekend? Doing so well. Yeah. It's good to be here. It must be tough being a writer, huh? You're, uh, we were just talking about three-day work weeks. I'm sure you only work three days a week, right? I mean, I'm sure that's, uh, yeah. I have a little more flexibility as a contributing editor now than I did as a managing editor, right? Uh, I think a three-day work week is something to which I aspire, still aspire. Oh, I mean, who doesn't aspire? Every time it happens, I'm just like, this is crazy. I mean, how fast the week goes that it's only three days. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could make it happen, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's better to be uh, not to be the chief. Sometimes it's better to be the Indian and not have to deal with all that stuff and uh, and make it happen. Um, all right, well let's uh, let's let's dive into this, JD, because I've said you know there's been a few things that I would call um, silver linings that came out of the pandemic. Um, you know the the kind of the exposure of the school. Uh, industrial complex, you know, the fact that more people discovered that homeschooling is not as tough as they were told, um, the remote working, that it actually has now been embraced by society. And my final thing coming out of the pandemic is the embracing of gun ownership, because we saw more people buy guns during the pandemic from all walks of life. In fact, by some estimates, the vast majority of new gun owners were women, minorities, and people who are left on the political spectrum. And they too discovered that the, some, they'd been told some lies, not just about homeschooling, et cetera, but also about the fact that it was just as easy to get a gun. In fact, it was easier to get a gun than it was just to get a library book. And uh, they discovered that wasn't necessarily true. And now, um, People are shocked, shocked, I tell you, that they may be a little hesitant to trust the same government that lied to them about all this. Walk me through this. Walk me through the, the whole idea here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I read this. Uh, this is a research paper that came out of Rutgers University in New Jersey. And the researchers there who work at a group that deals with guns and gun violence issues um, had been getting the sneaking suspicion that a lot of their research subjects were lying to them when they were saying that they did not own guns and uh, had no idea what the researchers were talking about. Because a lot of the people saying that looked an awful lot like the people who did own guns. So what they did is they uh, built profiles and uh, they were surveying about 3,500 people and they built profiles of people who said, yeah, we own, you know, I own a gun. And uh, they applied this across their pool. And what they came up with is various levels of probability that people were saying that they didn't own guns, but actually did because their responses on surveys to concerns and every and questions across the board looked much more like gun owners than looked like non-gun owners. And what they found was that uh, depending on what probability barrier you used, um, almost a third of the respondents were lying to them and saying they didn't own guns, but most likely 
did in fact own guns. It's really, it was kind of fascinating and obviously a bit of a mind boggler to the researchers. Right. They're like, how dare they lie to us? I mean, not, they weren't, they were outraged, but it was just shocked, <gasps> shocked. I tell you that these people would lie to us about owning guns. I mean, that may have nothing to do with the vilification of gun ownership in America and how everybody on the left uh, and, and the more progressive side of the world thinks that anybody that owns guns is some kind of, uh, you know, knuckle dragging troglodyte or wackadoo. Um, and so that may be why they don't want to say it. Or maybe it's because they have learned over the last couple, three years that they really can't trust what the government and other people in power are saying about firearms, right? Oh, absolutely. And actually, the researchers showed some self-awareness here. I mean, when they talked about now, they didn't know exactly why they were being lied to because the people who were lying to them weren't telling them anything. But um, they, they, they did admit that most likely is because the people they were surveying feared that the government might get access to the information and then use it as a means of confiscating their weapons, um, that they probably didn't trust uh, generally liberal leaning researchers um, who opposed gun ownership and uh, would would you know, it might be untrustworthy with, with information in their hands. And also that they probably came from communities that were by and large disapproving of uh, firearms ownership and therefore just didn't want to put it out there in public in any way, even one where they're promised anonymity, that they actually owned a gun anyway. And right. that was especially supported by the fact that um, as referenced in this, in this, you know, you referenced earlier, but also referenced in this uh, research paper, that there's been a huge surge in gun ownership. Um, it's it's heavily concentrated among women, um, among minority communities, especially African Americans, and it's added uh, more than seven million new gun owners to the uh, to the ranks um, by best estimates across the country. And this is reflected in uh, when they ran the probabilities and they and they correlated it against okay. Who is it that we think is, is lying to us? They found that the people who are most likely to be falsely saying they did not own guns were unmarried women of color who lived in cities. <laughs> so you talk about people who are based marinating in anti-gun uh, laws and anti-gun attitudes right. who jumped through serious hoops to, to own firearms in many cases or acquired them illegally because they don't know how they might have purchased them, but are well aware that they live in a gun unfriendly community. And they said those the unmarried women of color living in urban areas made up almost half of those they thought were falsely saying they did not own firearms. Well, I mean, let me say again, shocking. This is shocking, I'm sure. But let me tell you, if I get a phone call on a survey and somebody says, hi, I'm from Rutgers University's New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center, I mean, anybody who's got a gun immediately starts going like, oh, what do I want to tell these yahoos? Uh, and I mean, they're unhappy about that, but that's a it's a hard. This is what happens when you politicize uh, these arms and you weaponize the arms of these universities who are supposedly supposed to be studying things, but they go into it with an agenda. I mean, I could tell that these guys were shocked and dismayed and upset, but what do you expect when you have been blatantly and openly advocating for violation of people's constitutional rights uh, and you go into it with a premise and then you find stuff that doesn't fit your premise and you're upset. I mean, that just that it it shouldn't be that shocking. Oh, not at all. I mean, especially since so many of the uh, of the new gun owners are urban minorities, live under mayors, say, who have been brought together by, uh, you know, Bloomberg Inc. to um, 
to just kind of fulminate against gun ownership and to vilify gun owners and to say how awful it is that anybody would own a firearm who wasn't employed by the uh, by the state. Um, so they know that their political establishments don't want them to be armed. And they went out and for obvious reason. I mean, we've seen the social distress in the United States. We saw riots. We've seen a rise in crime. We've seen um, pol political polarization and a sense that people can't rely on the authorities to um, to defend them from threats to their, their families and their lives. So they decided that they needed to go out and buy the means of self-defense. But why would they then advertise that? And if you think that you cannot trust the surveyors on the phone because you already know that most academics are way left to center and unfriendly towards gun ownership, why even start a, a process that might expose you to more risk? And obviously, right. many of them decide that they're not going to. They're just going to lie. Right. Well, and I think a lot of these gun owners are already on edge, like you said, living in ungun friendly cities or communities. And probably have a lot of them have been part of that left wing movement and they know what all their friends think. Right. Because their friends are probably all very vocal about being anti-gun. So they're already living, you know, this quiet little <laughs> secret life of a gun owner kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, why would they trust any of them? But then I, I love the reaction from this. Uh, you quote one of the uh, doctoral students who is the lead author of this thing where she frames the problem of dishonesty among survey respondents as posing a danger to those who are answering the questions, the surveyed, since they don't receive proper firearm safety information. How, first of all, how does she know? Second of all, I mean, because a lot of these places require, you know, if you, some of these more urban areas to get the gun, you've got to jump through some hoops, including firearms training and everything else. But that's a that seems like a very arrogant assumption that just because they lied on the survey to you because they don't trust you means that they don't know what they're doing or they have not taken the time to educate themselves on guns. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, this is very much a professional ac academics attitude. I mean, a lot of people go into academia because uh, they're convinced that the world uh, will stop spinning if they don't get out and push. And the fact is, there are lots of, sorts of sources of information about gun safety, not college professors who probably themselves don't own guns. Uh, I mean, the, the, my guess would be that few, if any, of the authors of this research paper are themselves experienced with firearms. So why would you look to them as a source of gun safety information? But the assumption in the paper, of course, is that they are the source, that these people, by lying, are, are excluding themselves in the process of learning about proper firearm storage and the like. Um, and that's it, it, that really says a lot more about the authors of the research paper than it does about the people they're surveying. And, and that was fascinating. But obviously, that kind of attitude is probably one of the spurs to people to just leave themselves out of the process and to deny information to the people calling them on the phone, the total strangers calling them on the phone. Right. You don't want their attitude. You don't want their pre-existing assumptions, and you just don't need to be part of whatever process they're part of. Yeah, you don't know how I live. You don't know my life because you live on some high ivory tower up on a hill somewhere does not give you insight to what it's like to be me 24 hours a day. And uh, yet that seems to be the assertion most of the time from these groups. That's for sure. Uh, J.D. Tuchilli is our guest, contributing editor for Reason Magazine. We're talking about his latest article. Uh, well, not his latest because, damn, the guy is prolific. For working three days a week, he gets a lot done. I'll tell you what. Um, this is an article from just a couple days ago. I've linked it in the chat room. You can come out and check it out. It's over at Reason.com. We're going to continue with him, and we're going to talk next about, again, that breakdown that we were just talking about, new gun ownerships, how gun owners these days are no longer, again, the beer-swilling, Bible-thumping, white-bearded male in the woods. 
They look a little bit like everybody. And we're going to talk about that and more when we return. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. It's Firearms Friday. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. JD Tuchili, our guest uh, here on the program. We're in the commercial break right now, getting ready to jump in on this. Um, <clears throat> sometimes, I mean, I look at these articles and, and I looked at, I read through a bit of the survey that you have linked here in the uh, article. And I've just got to say the hubris and the arrogance of these people just really bleeds through in like almost every paragraph as they read it. It's like, oh, well, if they knew what they were doing, they would tell us all because we know better than them how to keep them safe. And I mean, it's just this kind of whole beard stroking, you know, superiority that we see from uh, from academia more and more. And, uh, you know, all these people are so misinformed. I know that they live in a poverty stricken, crime ridden neighborhood. But if they just went arm in arm and kumbaya with everybody, it would be so much safer for them kind of thing. And it's, it's a no wonder that they're getting the proverbial finger for many of these folks. Yeah, there's a larger issue here of a huge and growing split between academia and the, the rest of the public. Um, by and large, uh, I mean, you're getting these uh, monasteries and unfortunately, they're largely ideological monasteries that colleges and universities have become. Um, they don't represent the communities. If in the past they were, you know, they represented primarily the elites, people assumed uh, they don't represent the community at all now. Uh, they live in isolation from it, largely deliberately. They think different thoughts. They live different lives. They enjoy different activities. They really are kind of like modern monasteries. And that makes it um, troubling. Um, or not just troubling, but mainly problematic when they try to study us as if we're insects under a microscope and then tell us what it is that we're doing wrong, how we live and what, how we can improve ourselves. That's no, thank you. You decided to withdraw from our world. Go enjoy yourselves, but don't tell us what to do. That's exactly it. Examining us like we're insects under a microscope, like we're, you know, they're anthropologists and we're, you know, we're the ancient tribes that were just, we're so quaint and we really want to know how you think, but it's so much better where we live today than where you are, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating and it's frightening. And what's really frustrating about it. And like you said, this is really kind of a whole nother issue is that this whole academia is steeped and dependent, uh, because of cronyism on all this government handout and loot. So they line, they align themselves ideologically with the prevailing, uh, pro government sentiment in every opportunity they have no, I mean, there is no pro-individual, pro-freedom ideals that come out of any, nothing good, it seems like, is coming out of many of these studies or schools or different divisions of universities where they're studying us all. It just doesn't seem like any of it is pro, I guess we could just say pro-freedom in the, in the long run or pro-individual. It's all, how can we make you conform more to the masses than be an individual uh, American? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, an assumption going in in a lot of these research papers when you read them is that why are these ill-informed uh, peasants doing such terrible uh, things and how can we stop them? 
Um, and then if you're on the receiving end of that, um, I, I mean, once or twice is all it takes before you start rolling your eyes and decide you don't want to be part of the process. It also means that the research they produce isn't that useful. I mean, sometimes it uncovers interesting data, and that's why I wrote about this one. This is really interesting data, but it's not interesting in the way that the researchers think it is. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to us because it reveals, yeah, I mean, of course people want to maintain their privacy, and of course they don't trust you. You're part of the problem that they that they that they see is uh, making their lives worse, and that right. they intend to, they are trying to escape. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. The interesting stuff is the stuff that they don't talk about out loud. The interesting stuff is the fact that you have a whole new slice of the population, gun owners, new gun owners, who are reticent to talk to you, who would normally be in your camp, who would normally be on your side of the political table cheering you on, are now like, no, I don't think I want to talk to you about that. And that to them, I guess it's shocking in some ways and frustrating, uh, to which I say, good. I mean, good. Yep. That's it's good that you're frustrated and shocked because you you shouldn't. That's not information that you need to have. This is why I've said for years that I think that the small arms reporting in the in America is massively underreported. My estimate is that there's probably three quarters of a billion guns in America, not four hundred million, probably closer to three quarters of a billion, uh, specifically because of the underreporting uh, across the country. Uh, all right, JD Tuchelli, our guest, the Michael Duke Show. Here we go, jumping back into it. Common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow. Let's do this thing. Here we go. What the hell is an assault weapon? You know, if we could just figure out how to get all of the murder guns and the attack guns and not keep selling those to people and just sell protection guns, I think that would be great and solve a lot of problems. Does this mean that if we hurt your feelings, you'd consider The Michael Dukes Show Assault Radio? <laughs> okay, we can live with that. Here's Michael Dukes. That's right. Nothing but protection guns for days. No murder guns in this household. Absolutely not. Welcome back to the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. J.D. Tuchilli, contributing editor for Reason Magazine, is our guest. His latest piece over at Reason.com, entitled The Ranks of Gun Owners Grow and So Does Their Resistance to Scrutiny. Researchers report that many gun owners, especially newer ones, falsely deny owning guns. Uh, and this is, again, part of that problem, uh, J.D., where whenever we're talked about by the talking heads or the president or many of these anti-gun groups is that they treat the gun owner, uh, the gun owning population, the gun culture uh, people as if they're some monolithic, uh, you know, again, the stereotypically beer swilling, bearded, flannel wearing guy in the woods uh, with his hunting rifle, you know, sitting around the campfire uh, bragging about being a member of the KKK or something like that. I mean, it's always bad, right? It's always we're some kind of throwbacks to a darker age when if we could just get enlightened. But that's not true anymore. That's not true because, again, you we were just talking about all, approximately half of the new gun owners, seven and a half million of them, um, were female, black, Hispanic, or a combination thereof. I mean, we're talking about almost four million new gun owners who are none of them check the boxes that have normally been uh, been you know presupposed there, and it's tradition that that traditional ideology of what a gun owner is is changed, and nobody on the left seems to be catching up on that. 
Uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, think about what academia does. I mean, on the one hand, they vilify gun owners traditionally, you know, according to all the stereotypes, the Bubba stereotypes. But at the same time, the academics uh, tend to valorize certain parts of the community, in particular those they think are oppressed. But over the last few years, we've seen members of the oppressed community do something very self-empowering, which is to own firearms, which is what they thought, you know, the, the academics of the Bubba community did beforehand. So now academics are stuck um, in this you know, between a rock and a hard place, do they keep on vilifying gun owners, even though they're becoming more representative of the entire population? Or do they start attacking representatives of these valorized communities because they've chosen to, to empower themselves in a way that academics don't approve of by purchasing firearms? And there are a lot of them. There are millions of new gun owners. And many of them, as you mentioned, are black Hispanic women. I mean, a huge share of the new gun owners because of the events of the last few years. Yeah, I think you summate the whole argument very, this is a brilliant line, and I, I mean, love this line. Until recently, many gun opponents tried to paint firearms ownership as a fading fetish among a disappearing class of Americans. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it was, that we were anachronistic throwbacks, again, knuckle-dragging troglodytes that, you know, back with the cavemen, and it's a completely useless gesture, but that's all been proven wrong, again, just in the last... We have sold more firearms in this country in the last five years than probably in the previous... I don't know, probably 25 or 30 years combined. Uh, I mean, it has been record-breaking year upon year upon year of Nick's checks and everything else for new firearms ownership. And it, it totally blasts their whole theoretical bubble of we're a disappearing, you know, fetish of 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 aging and, and average Americans. And they cannot adapt quickly enough to that. And like you said, they can't decide now who to attack. Do they attack the bubble yeah. crowd or do they attack the the oppressed female minority class in the urban areas. Yeah, I mean, I think there was this comforting myth that uh, gun owners were disappearing. I mean, uh, you know, the, that these uh, the old hunting rifles were gathering dust in the closet. It was a myth. I don't think gun owners were disappearing. I think that as the debate over firearms heated up, gun owners started lying to surveyors, which is what this research paper discovered. And now, of course, they're, they're, they've copped into it. Probably they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that a lot of their assumptions about uh, gun ownership were false. The community has not been disappearing. It has not been shrinking with larger stocks of firearms owned by smaller numbers of Americans. It's actually been growing and very healthy and has now expanded dramatically in just a few years' time. If I had to guess, given the fact that if they're going to continue turning attacking gun owners, they're going to have to start attacking more and more members of valorized excuse me members of valorized and perceived as oppressed communities my guess is that a fair number of these researchers are going to switch over to being at least more neutral on gun ownership because they don't want to get in a position of attacking people that um they've kind of treated as a protected class in the past right yes but yeah and many of these communities have been oppressed and have a and have a lot of issues and problems to deal with but i i suspect that the researchers are going to respond to this by becoming at least more neutral on the gun ownership stance, trying to frame it a little bit differently than just as an exercise in white supremacy. Um, and they certainly will have to come to grips with the fact that it's not a disappearing community at all. 
Yeah. Uh, let's sidebar for just a minute from the article itself because it spurred another train of thought for me here. Part of the problem, and I think you and I have discussed this earlier, but part of the problem with this is um, is that the the academia and those people, the more elitist on the left, are being reinforced on a daily basis by the mainstream media, uh, by their reporting on firearms, by all the things that are going on. I mean, the fear peddling is real. Uh, there's just no doubt about it. In America, we still are at, even though homicide spiked recently in the last year or so, uh, uh, but they've again, they've kind of tapered off again post-pandemic. Uh, we are still at a 35 or 40-year low for homicides and violent crime in this country. Uh, because if you look at the if you look at the uh, the stats over a 15, 20, 30 year period, you could see they're on a downward decline. Yet at the same time, we have more guns in America than ever before. But this narrative that keeps getting pushed by the mainstream media over and over and over again, especially in relation to, you know, mass shootings or things like that, has the average American who's really not in the fight. They're in the middle between academia and the left and the gun control crowd and between the gun owners themselves. They're kind of in the middle. Uh, and I think that was part of the new gun ownership crew who discovered that it wasn't as easy to get a gun as it was to get a library book, as they've been told. Um, but they're kind of left in the middle with this, uh, with all these assertions, because the mainstream media plays a pivotal part in reinforcing that idea that this is somehow a fetishist lifestyle. It's absolutely true. I mean, uh, journalists at the elite publications, at least, I'm not talking about the small operations locally, but journalists at the New York Times and uh, the major cable networks um, are almost as isolated as academics are in terms of their uh, their relation to the average person. Uh, they tend to be concentrated in about three different cities, you know, uh, New York City for sure, uh, Los Angeles, and then uh, Atlanta to a certain extent, you know, and one or two others. But um, heavily concentrated, they tend to go to the same schools as our ruling political class. Uh, very often, they were college roommates of people end up in government. Um, they don't. They don't really represent um, the average American community um, in the way that uh, journalists did say in the past when it was a blue collar job. So. They definitely um, are looking at us also, again, as bugs under microscopes. They don't understand the lives of the average people, blue collar workers, uh, people working small, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, people living in small towns and, out, and outside of the, these large urban centers. And uh, they don't really have any idea what it is to uh, own a firearm or for that matter, you know, attend, attend church regularly or have to run a small business. There's a lot of things they don't understand. They're every bit as removed as the academics are. And uh, they have to right. come to terms with the fact that they don't understand the country that they that they report on. And that fact is re reflected by the fact they're losing their audience because right. the audience understands they're watching people who don't understand them try to tell them how they live their lives. That's not working. Right. Well, and they also come into it, most of them, with a deep cognitive bias that they refuse to acknowledge. Um, you know, at least, you know, previous journalists would, you know, you know, I guess nostalgia is is in hindsight all the time. But at least it appeared that many of these other journalists would at least acknowledge that they knew that they had biases. These people would swear up and down. Oh, absolutely not. Even though they've already looked at out, they already know what outcome they want and they write their pieces from that perspective. And uh, same thing, again, that we talked about happening in academia. They know what the outcome of the survey they want to be and they're just pissed that nobody will will comply and conform and help them reach the conclusion that they know is the right conclusion based on the data that they're that they're accumulating. Oh yeah, and, and I think we should get away from the idea of objective journalism. Back in the day that was not the case. I mean my uh 
in New York back in the 30s and 40s, my grandmother was a conservative and my grandfather was a socialist, and they used to scream at each other over the kitchen table in the morning over different newspapers. There were a dozen different newspapers in New York City at the time. They right. all were very open about their political biases, Absolutely. and they all had political biases. Yeah. So the problem isn't the bias. The problem is being open about it. Just admit it. Tell yeah. us where you're coming from. But also give us a diver diversity of sources. Don't say there's one there's one truth, and if you don't accept it, um, you know you're some kind of a heretic. Right. Well, Let, let's just have the arguments out in the open. That's yeah. exactly what I was saying. I mean, they were not shy about the. They said they stated outright, "Here's my bias." Now they they go, "Oh no, of course we're completely non-biased," and we. Uh, but wait, look at all this. Well, pay no attention to that. We're completely non-biased. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a shocking thing that we're. But like you said, most Americans, and thank God for the advent of the internet and at least major different sources. Um, it's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous today uh, with social media and some of these other things, because you create these echo chambers where people will, I will only get my source of news from X or I only get my source of news from Y because those are the only ones I trust. Hell, I read everything from RT today to Der Spiegel, to Reason, to CNN, to MSNBC, to Fox News, because somewhere in the middle of all that noise is the truth, right? I mean, we got to look at it from all perspectives. And people are, it seems, really hesitant to talk about and read about anything that doesn't absolutely conform with their own bias. Oh, absolutely so. I mean, uh, I make my son read a, a make. I don't, actually, he's very enthusiastic about it now, but he's learning Spanish, and I have him read El Mundo, which is a Spanish newspaper every day, because they report on the same facts around the world as American sources do, but they do so from a very different point of view, the point of view of a country that's not especially powerful, that has, uh, you know, you know, has a lot of stake in the game in terms of what the outcomes are, but really can't influence outcomes and has a different culture, different language, the whole bit. It's good to get different perspectives because the facts are going to be the same, but you want different points of view and you want to know where your neighbors are coming from so that you can't assume that you have a, a lock hold on the truth. Right. Exactly. It's, it's impressive. All right. Well, we're coming up on the, on uh, the last break of this hour. Uh, we're going to finish this up talking about his new article and I want to look at I want to extrapolate out what we've discovered here. The fact that gun owners, new gun owners specifically in your article, but I think gun owners overall are very reticent to be truthful with strangers and surveys and governments about their firearms ownership and what that means overall for the country. I want to finish up with that. Uh, J.D. Tuchilli is our guest from Reason Magazine. We're going to continue here in just a moment. We'll finish up and talk about that when we return. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Firearms Friday, baby. Thanks for coming in. We'll be back with more in JD2 Chili right after these messages. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on, on, the, on the Internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest here on the program. Um, I do. I have to. I have to agree with uh, with with this. Where 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 to go? Where did the comment go? Because I had to. Uh, I had to laugh. Um, also, we should gently chastise the photo editors at Reason for the choice of pictures to accompany that excellent piece. 
<laughs> I don't think JD has any editorial uh, 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 power over the pictures that they use, but yeah. Dude, do not put that thing in the back or the front of your pants without a holster. Why would you do that? And your finger looks like it may be on the trigger. I'm not a... Oof, man, it gives me heaps every time I see that. But uh, yeah, you may want to have a you may want to have a chat with somebody about that, JD. <laughs> um, let's see, what was the other comment? Photos that it can use, but that was particularly egregious. Whoops, we're we're losing JD for a second here. We got a little bit of a we got a little bit of a lag spike here. Um, look at that, perfect time. It always happens during the commercial break, for which I am very grateful. Um, that uh we get a anytime we get a little bit of a stoppage that it is uh uh that usually it's during a commercial break so sorry about that jd you broke up there i had a little bit apparently of a lag spike uh, on the internet there uh but yeah it's i know you don't necessarily have a choice in, in when you know they don't go to you and say is this picture okay uh but yeah that one's kind of particularly tough that was a bad one yeah uh, the other thing, somebody said, they. I bet he won't read this, uh, but I will. Uh, I, he, uh, Brian said, I bet that most women would admit to their family on Thanksgiving Day that they had uh, certain marital aids in their bedside table before they'd admit to owning a firearm. Probably. That'd probably be, that'd probably be more socially correct in some of those circles than it would be to admit having a pistol in the. Oh, don't look at my nightstand. What's in there? Uh, battery operated, chainsaw operated, what? No, no. Pistol, don't don't look in there. <laughs> you know, you can see it's it's a bad deal. Oh man, JD, you know, I I just the 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 hubris, I guess, more than anything else, that these people are just shocked. Shocked, I tell you, that we won't just accede to their mental superiority or intellectual superiority. I guess is just. I don't know how long that could continue before the average person just goes, you know, walls off the ivory tower and just leaves them to be on their own kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't I don't know how long that could continue before somebody calls them out on their pushwa. I, mean, I think you're already seeing that. I mean, you look at college application rates, uh, schools that aren't in that absolute top tier are seeing a drop in applicants across the board. A lot of them, a lot of people have decided that college isn't worth it. And that they'd rather go and, you know, that they'd rather look at alternatives, uh, hopefully the funny good ones, the trades, apprenticeship programs, what have you. But uh, the application rates for colleges are going down. I think that you know, people don't want their kids uh, marinating in the uh, ideological monastery, and they certainly don't want to pay for that. And what's interesting to me is that nobody on that side of the equation seems to have been able to explain this rush to gun ownership by you know the 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 downtrodden class that they would normally champion they they really there's been really no discussion uh it's been it's been touted by of course by the gun side because they're like look these are people that normally you say would not would would support but they're not they're now new gun owners and nobody on the left has really taken a crack at this to explain, uh, to justify, or to explain away why this happened, or how it's an anomaly, or anything else, because quite honestly, they—I don't think they can. I think that it creates a, a conundrum for them. Um, if you've rested much of your uh, political assumptions on the superiority of state action over private action, and all of a sudden, a large number of the people that you're studying very clearly lose faith in government power and government action and decide they got to do things for themselves, 
it really undermines your own position if you have, if you want to be honest about it. Now you've got to come to terms with this. So, uh, and that's academics. Of course, the politicians who've made careers out of being anti-gun now have to come to terms with the fact that a lot of the people they're counting on for votes may themselves now be more gun friendly, may themselves be gun owners and therefore vulnerable to any punitive laws that are pushed through. So there's a lot of implications downstream for what we've seen in terms of shifting gun ownership in the last couple of years. That fallout hasn't yet uh, fully taken effect because I think that people are still kind of digesting it. Uh, but there's going to be a huge impact on it. I think it's going to be much less of a safe bet for a lot of Democrats, for instance, to uh, Democratic politicians to simply assume that everybody who might vote for them hates guns and would right. love to see gun owners all thrown, uh, all thrown in jail. Between that and the Bruin, McDonald and Heller decision, it has fundamentally changed the landscape, I think, in in politics. And like you said, they're still trying to readjust. I don't think that they've come to grips um, with how that's going to work. Uh, and and like you said, I think it's a huge win for gun owners. Doesn't mean that we stop fighting. Doesn't mean we stop pushing back. But it means that we are at least taking some ground in the battle. And I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Um, all right, uh, final uh, segment with JD Two Chili Reason Magazine. We're going to jump back into this, The Michael Duke Show. Please like and share, like and follow, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Feel free to jump on board. Here we go. Uh, we're eight seconds away from uh, from radio excellence or mediocrity, one of the two. Here we go. Jumping into it. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Huh. Whew. I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. That's right. Not your daddy's talk radio, nor do I play him on TV. It is the Michael Duke show. We're ready to go. JD Tuchilli, our guest, Reason Magazine. We're finishing up a discussion of his uh, one of his latest articles uh, talking about researchers reporting that many gun owners, especially new ones, are falsely denying guns. Uh, I mean, I got to go back to this whole three-day work week thing. You put this one out on Wednesday. You've had two articles since then. You're just like writing an article a day. I could see how you could get your work done in three days. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive, my friend. Pretty impressive. Um, but let's talk about the knock-on effects of this. Uh, in the final segment of your article, you talk about how the old firearm assumptions look shaky, which we touched on earlier, that no longer is it just the Bubba crowd that are gun owners. And you go on to talk about the analysis uh, of uh, the National Firearm Survey, which came out in 2015. Uh, there was another firearm survey in 2000, I think it was 2004, 2005. And every time they do the survey, the numbers go up and up and up. But I think, and you can quote me if I'm wrong, or you can stop me if I'm wrong here, but I think that the problem is, is that this has been going on for decades this whole assumption that, that, or this whole thing that we're, they're lying to surveyors. I have made the assertion for at least the last 10 years that there's not 250 million guns in America, that there's not 400 million guns in America, that there's not five, that there has got to be close to over three quarters of a billion guns in America. I think it is completely underreported. And, uh, and I think that that has a huge knock-on effect overall to how the gun culture is going to respond to any kind of continuing movement from talking heads, government, academia to try and squelch those rights. I think it's going to be a big deal. 
Yeah, I mean, the numbers have always been suspect. Uh, some of them are drawn from knocking on people's doors. I think the uh, General Social Survey, they actually send people out to knock on doors and ask questions. A stranger knocks on your door and is standing there and you're going to reveal, you might ask me about my heroin use. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to do this. Um, right. You're not going to uh, admit something that might put you into political, social, or legal peril. Uh, at least not many people are going to do that. And so, of course, you're going to get distorted answers. And that's why you've got this, you know, this National Firearms Survey saying there are 265 million guns in the U.S., while the uh, Small Arms Survey out of Switzerland says, nah, it's actually closer to 400 million. That's their best guess. But nobody knows because the government didn't start tracking gun ownership in the U.S. I mean, even numbers until, what, the late 1960s, I think. So all those World War II surplus weapons that came back, the World War I ones, um, you know, heck, I've got, a, I've got a late 19th century lever action that works very nicely. You right. know that doesn't show up in anybody's figures. Right. Um, and all those are still out there, and they add to those numbers. And then you've got people lying to the surveyors. So, of course, the numbers are distorted, completely unreliable. But now you've got the researchers at least admitting that. So that's a step in the right direction. Right. Well, and then you pair this, that kind of revelation to realize that the underreporting is real. And, and like you said, the war trophies coming back is a whole nother issue. I mean, there were thousands of war trophies that came back. Pistols, rifles, machine guns, all kinds of stuff came back. Uh, uh, there was, I, I talked to an old vet here 15 years ago and he's like, yeah, I remember one of my buddies had an extra duffel bag over his back. And his, he said he could barely carry it. It was full of guns. One guy brought back, you know, a dozen different guns in this bag kind of thing. And he said none of those were reported. Um, and so you have this massive amount of underreporting. And then you pair that with this reticence from the public to partake or to comply with. Men. I mean, look, at, just for example, the, the, the uh, arm brace ban. You know, they had a grace period. They had a thing. You could come in. You could register it. They estimate that there's somewhere. I mean, somebody said 40 million. I think that's exaggerated. But they said somewhere between, what, five, six, seven million of these arm braces. And they only had 240,000 of them registered. Uh, the SAFE Act in New York, less than a single-digit compliance rate. You know, the Connecticut ban. I mean, we could go, you know, place after place after place where it's all there's a huge non-compliance rate. And I think you add to that the fact that there are many more guns than they estimated. And I think you're going to see a lot more people that will look at these kind of new laws and go, nope, just not going to play. And that's because people understand their vulnerability. I mean, California in particular has been utterly egregious about saying, yeah, please come in and register that. And then a year later saying, you know what, we changed our minds. It's illegal now. Thanks for registering it because now you got to surrender it. I mean, once you see that happen once or twice, why would you make yourself vulnerable? And so you do end up with things like compliance rates of 5% in New York and 15% in Connecticut with registration laws. And that's not unusual. Um, there's a researcher in Canada, Gary Mauser, who, who this is his field of study. And he says that internationally, country to country, the average compliance with registration laws is 16%. So that's what you would expect if you just if you knew nothing else. And then once you see um, administrations and, and governments around the country, violate the trust by saying come in register everything will be good and then come back and say no now you got to give it up you're not going to trust them why would right. you they've already set the precedent that you shouldn't right i mean they keep talking about how australia is the perfect model and then there was an article out of australia uh, a couple of years ago talking about how they estimate that the compliance rate in australia <clears throat> is below 40 percent on their gun buyback program that, you know, maybe in the urban areas, it was a lot higher, but way out in the boonies, in the bush, in the rural areas. No, no, they just, they just did not comply because again, 
they live, they're self-reliant. They live out amongst themselves. They've got to protect themselves. They don't have a cop on every corner kind of thing. And so even in places that we hold up as these models for gun control, they, people just, it's, it's a, it's a non-compliance thing. And I think that leads to a more dangerous precedent overall, as more and more politicians attempt to do something uh, when it comes to these kind of things, they uh, are in danger of what, you know, we talk about is the Irish democracy, where basically they start making laws that are so ridiculous that people just, they start, they stop paying attention. They just stop paying attention to the laws because they are so ridiculous and unenforceable. And, and, and that is a more dangerous precedent that I think than anything else. Absolutely. And, and, but that's also the norm. Anytime you impose these uh, restrictive laws, we should know that from prohibition in our own history. Why don't we take that as a lesson? You try to ban something that people don't want to give up, then the people who don't want to give it up won't. They'll just stop obeying the law. Um, the compliance rate I saw with the Australian gun buyback in, back in 96 was actually 20%. Um, it might have been higher than that. I mean, obviously, they're guesstimating. But even by official figures, Australian gun ownership now is up higher. Uh, um, in terms of prevalence among the population than it was before that buyback. Right. So they've already reclaimed all that lost ground if you don't even take into account the non-compliance rates. Right. Um, so, I mean, people have already learned, the Irish democracy, that, non you know, that non-compliance is the way to go if you don't want politicians to turn around and give it to you in the end. Right. Um, and that's something that should be expected. That's not. This is not a new revelation. This is something we should have learned a long time ago. Right. Well, and that's one of those things where uh, it, it, I think it is one of the most American of ideals and practices is civil disobedience. It really is. And it, uh, you know, I, I, the quote of something like that, you know, when 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 law becomes tyranny, then the duty is is basically resistance kind of thing. That's a bad paraphrase. But that was kind of the ideal of when when laws become it is your duty to not comply, essentially, at that point, to uphold the rights of the Constitution. And I think more and more Americans are feeling that, whether they're outright saying it or like these minorities and these ladies and these new gun owners who are basically just like, you know, don't ask, don't tell, shut up, and, you know, shoot, shut up and, and sit down kind of thing. And uh, and I, I think that this is, uh, this is a good direction for us to be, for those of us who are in the gun culture, this is a good direction for the country to continue to be heading in. I'll give you, I'll give you kind of the final words here, JD, uh, last, uh, last two or three minutes here. Yeah, I think that this, this paper kind of shows an eye opener for a lot of gun researchers, which is that the community that they think that they've been studying for decades look actually looks a lot different than they think it looks. That's because it's resistant to being surveyed it doesn't trust the researchers. In many cases, it believes that they come in with an agenda, potentially a pro-government agenda, and it's not willing to comply. And that a lot of what they're doing is kind of spinning around in circles and chasing their tail to a reset among gun researchers, but also should lead to a reset among politicians. Because when you have um, a growing share of the population Owning firearms in areas that are highly resistant and make it difficult to own firearms is because they've lost uh, faith in the state. And that's going to shake up. That has implications for policy, but also for politics. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is a big deal for gun ownership. But it's also a big deal for American politics, faith in the state and for the ability of researchers to get any kind of valid information that we can rely upon. Well, especially since a lot of this research is being relied upon by government sources and other politicians to then implement laws yep. that take away more constitutional rights. I'm happy to see them get crappy information at this point. Um, you know, but as you said earlier, the uncertainty amongst politicians who heretofore were very 
confident in what their electorate would do. Now they have to question, well, my electorate that would normally vote for me, even though I was pro-gun control, now they may, in the voting booth, they may say it to the, everybody else, oh, yeah, yeah, I support so-and-so, but they may go in the booth and pull the lever for somebody else. That kind of uncertainty is actually good for politicians. It's actually good for the process. And uh, and I, I hope we'll continue to see more rulings come out that kind of challenge this whole status quo that's been in place really for only the last 60 years. That's the thing. The, the gun laws that we're talking about now, most of these infringements have only come about within the last 60 years. That's right. absolutely right. And the enjoyment of liberties should not be confined to one ideology because then it gets too, it becomes too easy to punish people who hold that ideology by punishing their liberty. As the enjoyment of that liberty spreads out across the population, it's much less safe to target political opponents by targeting the liberties that they enjoy. And that's a, that is definitely a positive development here. J.D. Tuchilli, Reason Magazine. J.D., what are, what are you working on next? Anything, I mean, firearms related, but anything else that uh, you want folks to know about over the weekend? Well, the latest piece that came out today is about trade war between the U.S. and China. The U.S. wants to cut China off from, from uh, computer chips, and China has now cut the U.S. off from germanium and gallium, which are two minerals that you need to make computer chips. So the trade war escalates, and... One is had by all. <laughs> oh, it's never a dull moment. Never a dull moment around here. If you want to get JD's piece in your email every day, you can go get and subscribe to The Rattler over on Reason Magazine at Reason.com. JD to Chili. Thank you so much, my friend. It's good to talk with you. Thank you for thank you for coming back so soon. I appreciate it. I really wanted to talk about this today. All right, folks, we got more coming up. The Michael Duke Show continues. It is your home for common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Hour two, dead ahead. <laughs> Seriously, man. So, I mean, it's just such good stuff. It's so great to see, in my mind, it's so great to see the elites in academia scratching their heads, just stymied by the fact that people won't talk to them. Um, well, you know, after you beat them down and you vilify them and you chastise them and you criticize and mock them for so long, do you really think that people are going to be open to explaining to you all the things that are going... I mean, do you really think that that's going to be a thing? Do you really think that that's going to be, that they're going to want to talk to you? And then again, this whole idea plays out even further. Like I said, I have been arguing for years that the small arms survey, which, well, others, but even the small arms survey, which has the largest, suggests the largest number of private firearms ownerships in America to be around 400 million, is woefully understated. Because, you know, I, let's face it, even if people were willing to admit to a surveyor that they have one firearm, do you think that they're willing to admit that they have four or six or ten or, I mean, I don't know. Greg, did you get another Connex for your stuff? I mean, you know, who who knows? I just don't think that they're going to be. I just don't think that they're going to be uh, telling the truth and have been telling the truth for decades on that. I just I just don't see it. I just do not see it. And the fact that we have, you know, 
what I would say would be probably a rough estimate. Again, just go back and look at the Knicks background checks for the last 10 years, right? Remember, we used to call Barack Obama the greatest gun salesman the industry has ever seen. Um, it, it was not unusual to have 15 to 20 million Knicks checks in a single year. Now, even assuming that only three quarters of them were for new guns, just extrapolate that out by 10 years. That's an extra 150 million guns. And some years, it was much more, 27, 28, 30 million Knicks checks in a single year. It, it's, it's astonishing. But when you think about it and you think about that, it does make you feel, uh, it does make you feel overall a little more confident in what's happening uh, in the culture wars against gun owners because we are legion. Maybe they don't agree with us on different social things. Maybe they don't agree with us on you know, issues of, uh, of, you know, I don't know, gender, sexuality, uh, you know, size and scope of government, everything else. But at least they're smart enough to know that they have to be able to defend themselves no matter what, no matter how stupid the law is. And that means that there are more people in our corner who are now ready to go to the mats in one way or the other when it comes to gun control, that maybe they won't be voting for politicians that they would normally vote for who could normally count on their vote. And uh, who now are have some hesitancy, may have to think twice about supporting a specific policy because a big slice of their constituency may not be as supportive of it as they thought they were in the past. It's good. And, and again, I find it very interesting that nobody on the left, nobody in the gun, pro-gun control crowd has really come up with a has really come up with an answer for why this is, you know, why this is happening um, and, and, and to basically to <clears throat> obfuscate why all these minorities and women, people who normally traditionally would be for their gun control policies are purchasing firearms and are refusing to answer the question. It's, it's interesting to say the least. Okay, um, good good talk. Good talk with JD Tuchilli from Reason Magazine. I really appreciated that. I really enjoyed that. Um, but we're going to open up the phone lines now uh, for those of you who may want to participate telephonically. Uh, it, I'd love to see what you guys have to say. 907-433-3150. Um, <clears throat> let's get in on that. Um uh, Brian says, and in the intervening decade, oh, come on. And in the intervening decade, we've seen the rise of the defund the police, ACAB, which is all cops are bastards. That's the, that's the, the, that what that is. The Antifa movements and the global pandemic. We've seen all those things. I mean, that's, you know, that is the disconnect. And we've talked about this on the program before the disconnect between people who are like, um, we believe that all all cops are corrupt. All cops are bastards. We wanted to fund the police. Yet at the same time, the criminal element in your community is running rampant. What do you think was going to happen to those people who were honest law-abiding citizens who were just worried about their own safety? 
I mean, especially when they see this stuff run amok, it's not surprising. It's, uh, you know, it's not surprising to see them, uh, you know, want to join the gun culture and then be reticent to share that ideology um, with uh, with everybody else as well. Okay. Um, let's see. What is, uh, what is, uh, what else is happening here? I'm going through some of the comments, um, and seeing what you guys, uh, want to talk about. Uh, everybody's talking about a lot of boating accidents. We get some, we get some real, we need some boating education around here. There's a lot of boating accidents going on out here. <laughs> what people are talking about. Hand-waving freak outery has a real good piece on the lost war on guns, which dovetails nicely with Mr. Tuchilli's piece. Um, B.J. Campbell, who's the author of the blog, Hand-Waking, uh, Hand-Waving Freak Outery, uh, trying to get him on the program. He and I have had some back and forth a little bit, so we're going to try and get him on. He writes very, he consistently writes brilliant articles about uh, uh, the gun culture and gun control and more. It's a fascinating piece. All right. Whoa, buddy, put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my little friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. Michael Jackson. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be Firearms from my cold, dead hands. Friday. Firearms Friday. Firearms Friday. Got caught short there at the very end. Firearms Friday. Welcome back to hour two of the big radio broadcast. It is the one day a week that we dedicate to. The Second Amendment to gun rights to uh, discussions of a Second Amendment nature, and uh, we are deep into it. If you just are joining us, you just missed a fantastic interview, if I do say so myself, a great interview with J.D. Tuchilli, a contributing editor for Reason Magazine, who uh, is talking about uh, the uh, gun ownership and how the ranks of gun owners are growing. But that included in that growth is also a resistance to scrutiny, how researchers are uh, aghast and, and, and worried and upset that gun owners, many gun owners, especially the newer ones, are falsely denying uh, owning guns on surveys and other things because they're trying to get accurate data to provide certain policies and to do all these things. And um, they're shocked, shocked, I tell you, when people just don't trust them. Uh, it's a great, it's, it was a great, it's a great piece. If you haven't gone out and read it, I'll post it again in the uh, chat room and you could take a look at it and then um, 
we'll see we'll see what you guys have to say. But uh, you can go back and listen to the uh, podcast uh, from hour one for that interview with JD Two Chili if you'd like. It's a it's a good. It's a good, uh, good, good, goodly time was had by all in hour one this morning. Hour two, I've got a whole bunch of headlines and news stories from around the country in regards to uh, uh, Second Amendment stories and gun stuff. Uh, but I'm also opening up the phone lines for gun Q&A, questions and answers. Um, it's just any kind of gun discussion or gun talk. We'll go ahead and open up those phone lines now at 907-433-3150. 907-433-3150. If you'd like to sound off, we'd love to hear anything that you would like to talk about today in regards to firearms. Uh, we want to say a special thank you to Satellite West. Uh, SatelliteWest.com is where you find them. They are proud sponsors of the program across the state of Alaska because they provide services across the state of Alaska, from Shaktulik to Shishmaref, from uh, uh, Tin City to Talkeetna. Wherever you are in the state of Alaska, they can provide you with the technology to stay connected. Uh, phones, uh, if you want to send a text message, if you want to surf the Internet, if you want to send emails, they've got all the technology to make it work for you. And all you have to do to find out more and to find a local dealer is to go to SatelliteWest.com and uh, look on their local dealers page. And they can put you in contact with the right people to get the tools and the technology you need to stay connected and to succeed. It's good stuff. SatelliteWest.com. Thank you to them, by the way, for sponsoring the program. Um, all right. So phone lines are open. Any topic is fair game as long as it's firearms related or, you know, related to the second in some way, shape, or form. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say. It's one of my favorite parts of the week is uh, doing a little uh, gun stuff on Firearms Friday We'd and, and phone calls on Firearms Friday. We'd love to hear from you uh, on that. Uh, meanwhile, let's jump into um, let's jump into some of the discussions of the headlines around the country. Now, um, it's been a busy, busy week. Overall, uh, there's been three different shootings within the last 10 days. Um, the, uh, well, yeah, less than 10 days, I guess, within the last week or so. Um, there was a block party in Baltimore, where, uh, which I don't think was a mass shooting as more, much as it was a gang-related event, where two people were killed and 28 people were injured. Um, there was a, a Baltimore um shooting that took place in Baltimore uh, over the uh, holiday weekend as well. And of course, the big one was the one in Philadelphia, where it was very obvious that it was not just a criminal act or anything else. It was very obvious that it was loony. I mean, absolutely loony uh, what was going on. Uh, first and foremost, the initial description of the shooter uh, is, I mean, it Definitely some mental health issues going on, as it is alleged that the Philly shooter was a cross-dressing BLM activist. A suspect wanted in connection with the shooting in southwest Philadelphia was identified as a 40-year-old male. He was arrested on Monday evening after allegedly shooting and killing five people and injuring two children in a neighborhood. Uh, they apprehended the male suspect who was wearing a ballistic vest um, in, uh, in the... On Facebook, the shooter had been seen posting in support of Black Lives Matters and also follows the BLM uh, Philly Facebook page. 
Uh, and then there's some confusion that comes in because police said they arrested a male and then social media posts so the, show the suspect wearing female clothing and that the Philadelphia authorities were using the they them pronouns to now describe them instead of the male pronouns as they did originally. Then the Daily Mail said that the suspect is a crossdresser, which, of course, means somebody who wears women's clothing but doesn't identify as a woman. And it just gets weirder from here. It just gets weirder as you go on from here, because then uh, from yesterday, uh, according to um, uh, according to the Inquirer and uh, BearingArms.com, uh, the suspect told police, uh, well, let me just read it here. The shooter accused of killing five people during a harrowing rampage in southwest Philadelphia Monday night told police that the shooting spree was an attempt to help authorities address the city's gun violence crisis and that a deity would be sending more people to help, according to sources familiar with the investigation. The assertions by the killer were made to the police in the hours after he was arrested uh, on South Fraser Street. Um, the alleged killer told first responding officers who made the arrest that they had done a good job. He also told them the gunfire, which spanned several blocks and struck people, including two children who had no apparent connection to one another, was an attempt to help police because all these guys are out there killing people. Now, what's really weird about all this is that the shooting took place in a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, which, again, if you're marching for BLM and supporting BLM and yet you go in, there's just obviously this guy. If these if these reported quotes are accurate. This guy needed some help like yesterday, like years ago, years ago. But see, you see the continual rise of the stardom that is created by news media reporting on this kind of stuff. That's why we continue to see these kind of things go on and on and on, because they get the they get the parade. They get the the notoriety. They get all that, you know, the infamy. If you can't be famous, be infamous. And that's what a lot of these things are saying. Um, and it just goes to show you that you can't necessarily. We, we can't count on the system to catch the folks who are touched or mentally unstable or anything. We just you just can't catch it enough. You've got to be prepared for yourself. We would like to think that in a perfect world, none of these things would ever happen. But here you go. Yet another example of why you should go forth armed. You should be prepared. You should have a plan. You should do all those things because this is what we're dealing with. I'm just you, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, all right, let's go over to the phones to see what you have to say. 907-433-3150. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Good morning, Michael. This is Steve from Fairbanks. Morning, Steve. I'm just calling with a, a update reminder on the Glock demo shoot. Glock sending two reps up July 28th. Uh, that's a Friday. Hopefully it's not raining that day. Um, the demo shoot itself is from 5 to 7 p.m. They're going to bring a bunch of clocks and uh, be a good opportunity. you got to register ahead of time the cost uh, for non-APOA, that's Alaska Peace Officer Association, members is 10 bucks. And otherwise, if you are a member of either APOA or FAS, that's Fairbanks Alaska Shooters, uh, they're also one of the sponsors of this. 
um, then it's free if you're an FAS or APOA. Otherwise, uh, in August, Saturday, August 19th, there's going to be the annual APOA Memorial Champion Shooting Championship, something like that. Uh, that's, again, that's on Saturday, August 19th. Check-in begins around 8 a.m. Uh, shooting match begins at 10 a.m. And uh, the stages are designed by six area, Fairbanks area, uh, law enforcement instructors. Um, should be a lot of fun. It really should. And the cost on that is $50 unless you're a member of either APOA or FAS. So it would be worthwhile if you're interested in this and you don't want to pay $60 to look uh, to see what it costs to join APOA. I'll give you a hint. It's a lot less. <laughs> um, and I, I'm sorry, I don't know what the cost is annually to be a member of FAS. I, right. I'm not aware and, of that, and this is both, these are both taking anyway, place so in, these are both taking place in Fairbanks at what range? Where are they going? Where, where is it being held at? Well, it's, it's slightly out of Fairbanks. It's at the Fox Range. So, uh, okay. so David Dwyer is the owner, uh, operator of, but yeah. Okay. That's what's going on. All right. I'm looking forward to it. And you go to APOA.org and look under the events for Fairbanks, and you'll find it there, right? Yeah, APOAonline.org. If you just Google APOA, uh, again, that stands for Alaska Peace Officer Association. If you Google that, look at either training and events or uh, look at farthest north chapters. So there's a series of chapters, uh, local chapters, and the FNC, the farthest north chapter, is the one here. So. All right. Well, Steve, thanks for giving us the reminder, July 28th and August 19th, right? Yes, sir. And, and registration ahead of time is required. And, and registration is required. All right. Well, thank you for uh, yes, giving sir. us the heads up again, Steve. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, maybe folks will uh, hopefully come up and show up and uh, and enjoy themselves. That sounds like it'd be a fun time in Fairbanks. So thank you, Steve, for calling in and uh, and sharing with us. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, there'll be prizes. Sorry, I forgot to say that. There'll be prizes. Oh, there'll be prizes for, for good shooters. Yes, sir. <laughs> bad yes, shooters, sir. bad shooters, no prizes. Good shooters get prizes. Okay, good enough. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate That's you right. calling in and uh, sharing with us today. Uh, that opens up all the phone lines at 907-433-3150. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, uh, be part of it, come on down and, uh, and join us. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately. Uh, and as we, as we talk about, most of us don't, uh, you know, here on the program, we generally don't deal with a lot of national issues, uh, except for firearms. Firearms is a, is a national issue, so we do deal with that every week. But most of the other issues we don't necessarily get into. The presidential race, though, is going to be interesting. Um, there's already a lot of talk because of Biden's age and his popularity uh, and, of course, a few of the missteps both physical and mental, that he's made here in the last few months, that he may not be the best choice for the Democratic nominee uh, for President of the United States. Now, I don't know if egos aside, if he would be willing to step down or not. Uh, there's been no indication yet uh, as to whether or not he is going to be the Democratic frontrunner. But among the rumblings of people who have been talking about it, his apparent next best choice successor 
is Gavin Newsom, the the, uh, governor of California. Now, he added some fuel to the fire recently by uh, uh, by basically advocating for an Article five convention, um, which is a constitutional convention and to create an amendment that would allow that would outlaw essentially wide aspects of the Second Amendment. It would be this 22nd Amendment to the Constitution and that it would basically outlaw um, assault rifles, high capacity. I mean, it's a whole plethora. It's a wish list of gun control issues. Now, most politically savvy people and most of the talking heads and everything else that I read and have have looked at and, and gone over on this issue point out that this really is uh, it's 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 really a non-starter for most people, and that this really is more than anything else a political stunt by Gavin Newsom to get some headlines. But some Democrats have even deeper issues with this amendment plan, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show continues. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Phone lines are open if you want to sound off. We'd love to hear what you have to say. He'll be back with more in just a moment. Plus, Willie Waffle coming up at the end of the show today. We'll be back right after this. What is that? Common sense. Regularly heard on American radio. Okay, uh, in the break, in the break, uh, let's see, um, how many states are required? Three quarters, not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, Biden's popularity is waning, a few popularity Biden is already doing uh, his campaign for re-election, says Chris. I mean, yes, he's said that he's running for re-election, but that doesn't mean that the powers that be within the Democratic Party won't try and pull an end run around him uh, based, again, just on his popularity. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's you know, so even though he started to I'm not saying that he's not attempting to run. The question is, will the party let him based on everything that's going on? Uh, that's, that's my question there. Um, (laughs) Rick says, oh my God, not that idiot. Uh, a failed governor of California. Yeah. Uh, this is a, it's a really interesting turn of events on this issue. Um, and we're going to talk about exactly why this is, uh, why this is a problem. And, uh, we'll, we'll continue to, uh, we'll continue to talk about that. Uh, if we have to, if we have enough time, we'll also talk about why you know just more proof positive that criminals, um, by their very definition, will break the law, and that it doesn't, it that it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> story coming out of Oregon, that just blows my mind. We'll talk about that here as well. Plus, we've got uh, looks like we got a phone call uh, on the line, so we'll jump back to that uh, and do that. Uh, what else are you guys doing this weekend? What are you, what are you, are you ready to do something? Are you ready to go out and make something happen? What, or are you, I mean, I'm going to do some grilling, man. Ever since I got my grill working again, I've just been grilling like two, three times a week. 
so good. That charred meat on the grill. Oh man. And then this last weekend I made some salmon. I got some salmon from a friend. Um, and I made three big boats, tinfoil boats of lemon pepper salmon. So, so good, man. So tasty. Um, it'll be, uh, it'll be a, uh, so I'm sure I'll be doing some more cooking this weekend. And then, uh, I don't know. I got, I got to cut some other things. I need to clean up. I've got a, I've got a cleanup uh, session. We've got some stuff we need to haul away to the dump, um, and get things squared away. I got a new weed whacker last weekend that, uh, allowed me to go up and clean up the yard. My old weed whacker it was not even my, it was Terry's grandfather's weed whacker finally died. Poor thing. It was it worked so good for so many years. Um, I'd be lucky to get half the life out of a new weed whacker as I did out of this old one. Um, but I uh, got a new weed whacker, so I got all that. And the battery-operated ones are so nice. So nice. Not to have all that noise and everything else. Great stuff. Smoked barbecue and buffalo chicken wings for dinner tonight. Oh, man. Some fresh buffalo chicken wings. I am all about that, baby. I am all about that. Um, all right. Making money is on my agenda, says Chris. That's what he's got for this weekend. Making money, making money, honey. That's what it's all about. Um, all right. Um, what time is dinner? Says Terry. Let me go over to the phone lines and see who's there and we'll get them set up for the return to radio. And then we'll talk a little bit more about Gavin Newsom. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Hi, this is Jason from Fairbanks. I've got something that Mr. Chuchilli and you might like to chew over the next time you have him on. Okay, good. Well, He's hold, probably hold, well, well hold, familiar with it, too, okay. because he lives in the, in the area. All right, well, hold the line, Jason, and we'll be right back to you to talk about it here on the other side. We're about 40 seconds out, so don't, uh, don't go anywhere. All righty. I am ready to... This three-day work week was awesome. Man. Now, if I could just do this every week, uh, I mean, it would suck for the radio show for you guys, but you know, God, it would be so good for me. I'd be so happy with that. <sighs> In my old age, don't want to work as hard as I used to. Is it a thing? Is it, it those of you who are older than me is, do you feel that occasionally? There's <laughs> 10, 12, 15 hour days just starting to get a little old. Yeah. I'm with you on that. All right, here we go. Jumping back into it. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. All right, welcome back to the program. It is Firearms Friday, our final firearms segment before we're joined by Willie Waffle for the weekend movie edition of the show. Uh, before we continue on our discussions with Gavin Newsom, uh, I'm going to take a phone call here. Jason's up in Fairbanks. He had something that he wanted me and J.D. Tuchelli to mull over next time I had him on the program. Jason, what's uh, what's on your mind, my friend? Well, what I was thinking is, you know, the shootings, those neighborhood party shootings that occurred over the 4th of July and before that, of course, um, 
I wonder if J.D. Chuchilli probably is knowledgeable writing for Reason Magazine, plus I think he lives generally in that area with what's called the Camden Solution. It was something that um, the police and the politicians in Camden, New Jersey, which had, had, which had some very high-crime neighborhoods, did. What it was is they, they simply encouraged police officers from their force to live in those very neighborhoods and to do foot patrol, bicycle patrol, even mounted patrol. And the thing is, for the people who live there, regardless of what race the people are, there's someone, each officer is someone that the people know. It's not just a stranger wearing a blue uniform, you know. It's Officer Jones or Officer Smith or whatever, you know, uh, whoever he or she might be. And what they found was the people became to trust those people as individuals, and they would report problem people who showed up in the neighborhood, folks who didn't belong there, and also and this is a good index of safety and increasing safety in the neighborhood, the property values, which were practically you know, as cheap as dirt because nobody wanted to live there, the property values went up, which meant that people didn't feel unsafe living there anymore. And that could be duplicated in any city or any neighborhood or any section of town. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking he about. Probably, Mr. Giuchilli probably knows quite a lot about it. Oh, uh, he lives in Arizona, so he's he's a little bit far away from most of that stuff. But I think that, and we, we could talk about this with JD here uh, in the future. But this is, you know, part of the problem with policing uh, over the last fifty years is that there has been a fundamental shift in policing from more of the, as you're talking about, kind of the community aspect, where the police. You know, peace it, it, officer too. Yeah, it, it went from peace officer to law enforcement officer. It went from, you know, somebody who right. walked the same beat or lived in the same neighborhood or anything else. It became, it became more divided. You know, when police officers start calling people who are not police officers civilians, and kind of the militarization of the police, that's when that divide really started to become more stark. And you're right, communities that have embraced that more community policing approach of officers who live in their neighborhoods who, you know, who walked around, who did, you know, who were involved in the community, who, you know, went around and knew people in the neighborhoods, you know, kind of the Mayberry USA kind of thing. Um, those communities are exactly like Andy Griffith. Exactly. They're much they're much safer. They're much more cohesive. And uh, it's something that we kind of need to get back to. Now, how do we do it from here? I don't know. It was incremental to get here. Can we do it incrementally? I don't think we can go back in one fell swoop, of course, with especially with a lot of the hurt that is in many of these communities where the whole ACAB movement or the uh, defund the police movement is all based on kind of that. Right. That divisiveness is, you know, it was predictable. Uh, this kind of reaction is eventually predictable when you get that. And, of course, again, the militarization of the police, I think, has a lot to blame for that uh, in the long run. Uh, because when they start treating, you know, when they start treating non-police uh, as if they're, you know, again, civilians or combatants in some cases, that's a that's a real problem. Um, and and I think that that has led speaking to this. as if they're military personnel, which they aren't. Right. Exactly. Well, but we saw this. Uh, I still remember a uh, I still remember a, a picture that somebody sent me about 10 or 15 years ago. And it was off the back of a law enforcement. Uh, it was a trade. I know it was a trade magazine or, or no, it was a military magazine uh, because it basically had a guy in kind of in full battle rattle. On one side of the picture, 
in like, you know, desert camo. And on the other side, a guy in full black battle rattle with the word SWAT across his chest. And it basically, the whole thing was basically miss the excitement of doing this. You could still kick in doors and do all this kind of stuff over here with this police department, you know, kind of thing. And that was a very stark reminder that the militarization of the police can be a very dangerous thing when you bring that mindset that you've acquired in hostile territory, in enemy territory during a wartime, and you try and translate that to peacetime, you know, law enforcement or peace officer duties, those two things just don't, you know, they don't compute. And uh, it is a difficult thing. But I think the thing that happened at the Opelika Air Show, where where the DEA did their demonstration wearing those black balaclavas, and the, the crowd was just silent. It's like, who are these people? Yeah. They're supposed to be fighting for me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, yeah. Jason, thank you for the thought. I appreciate you sounding off this morning. Appreciate you being thank part you. of it. Have a good weekend. Uh-huh. You too. Let's go over here. We'll take another call. Uh, good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Uh, Sammy, two rivers. Hello, Sammy. What's on your mind? Um, there's, there's a loud echo. Um, a few weeks ago, you had a man call in um, and give us a, a Alaska website for guns because uh, Alaska List apparently wasn't being reliable. Do you remember the name of it? I wrote it down. I can't find out where. Oh, I don't. It was like Alaska Guns. Yeah, I do not remember the name of the site. Maybe somebody in the chat room remembers uh, and wrote it down. I do not remember the name of the site, quite honestly. Um uh, and, oh darn it! Yeah. I was hoping you would because I don't get on Facebook. Yeah, I I can't remember. Uh, I'll have to go back. Like I said, maybe somebody in the chat room uh, remembers, or one of the other listeners who are out there, um, um, you, you know, who are listening right now, could call in and tell us. But I do not recall, unfortunately, Sammy. Oh boy! Oh well. Well, I hope somebody does because uh, because I really have been. It was really simple, but whatever. I've been racking my brain for it. Anyway, okay. Um, hopefully somebody will because I don't do Facebook, which apparently I have to because everybody's on there, but whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for calling in, and sorry that I couldn't remember right off the top of my head. Uh, maybe, again, maybe somebody else will Maybe somebody else will have that information, and we can get it out to you here before the end of the show today. Okay, uh, we're coming up uh, here. Uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, one of the things, let me just quickly throw this out there so that we know because we're running out the clock. One of the things that many Democrats are worried about uh, with the Article 5 convention that Gavin Newsom is calling for is that uh, the topic cannot be constricted to simply gun control which is the same problem we had here in the state of Alaska where we were talking about having a constitutional convention and how it could be opened up to every other topic. Um, The problem is, is that you can't just keep it on a single topic. And many of the Democrats are worried that there's no way to limit that and that many conservatives might use the meeting to introduce a variety of constitutional amendments that some have backed for years. I mean, even Mark Levin, who wrote a book back 10 years ago, The Liberty Amendments, uh, where he was forced trying to force an effort to hold a convention of the states, he championed some very congr- very uh, aggressive conservative amendments, and that's part of the problem, uh, especially given the fact that Republican states 
outweigh Democratic states overall right now, 22 red states versus 18 blue states. And so it would be a very difficult thing for them to try and control. And they're worried about that. Again, another reason why this Article 5 convention is not going to go anywhere. And again, more just proof positive that really, I don't think Newsom ever expected it to uh, do anything other than raise his visibility and be able to do something to kind of kick off a presidential campaign for now, which I don't know. Biden's a disaster. I think Newsom would be even worse, quite honestly. Uh, all right, we got more coming up. Willie Waffle dead ahead, the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay. We are ready to go. Let's change this back here. Close the phone lines down. Get everything ready for Willie. Goodbye. 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 All right. Let me see what... Oh, I suppose I got to change the background too because that just makes sense. Got to do what I got to do. Willie's got to have his own secret color and all that. All right. There we go. Um, all right. Let me go back to the comments to see where you guys are at this morning. See what you are all about. Um, not much has changed. A lot of rhetoric and vitriol about our country going down the drain. Uh, where? Here? That's not what we're talking about, but okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Gavin Newsom doesn't have the horsepower to call a constitutional convention, said Jeannie. No. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you may be, Bill, you may be hiding with Biden, but it's gruesome with Newsom. I think that that should be a but that should be a campaign button. It's gruesome with Newsom. <laughs> oh, man, that is that is some good stuff. Um, it's, it's good stuff. The Oregon issue. Uh, said Terry. Oh, uh, it's a story uh, that basically say, you want to know why gun control doesn't work? There's a story out of Oregon that proves this. So, I mean, because they were, you know, the gun supporters are always going on about how these, some of these states are doing so well, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, Oregon has got some of the more stricter gun control laws in the Western states. California is obviously worse, but Oregon is, is they're doing pretty good. Um, but just to prove that, None of these things seem to be fixing this problem because, again, criminals, by their very definition, break the law. There's this new story out of Oregon. An indictment was unsealed in federal court on Wednesday, charging 35-year-old Joshua Allen Lamp, a resident of Eugene, Oregon, with the illegal possession of two firearms that had been converted, uh, converted into fully automatic machine guns and a suppressor. He was accused of unlawfully possessing two machine guns and a silencer, violating the National Firearms Act. Uh, which obviously prohibits the possession and transfer of certain firearms without proper registration. According to the court documents, this is what gets me. According to the court documents, in August of last year, 
A search of Lamps' residence led investigators to seize numerous firearms, knives, ammunition, firearms, accessories, parts, laser scope sites, packing materials, tactical gear, and armament. So they went in and did all this stuff. Apparently, he under investigation, under indictment, whatever. Then, <laughs> this is great, four months later, they go back in in December and they obtained another search warrant for a second time. This search revealed Lamp had, in the meanwhile, acquired hand tools, a rifle, firearms parts, machine gun switches, a 3D printer used to produce the switches, several ghost guns, a silencer, packaging materials, methamphetamine, heroin, and fentanyl. This guy was already under... I mean, the, what? So gun control works so well that a dude in Oregon, again, one of the more heavily gun-controlled states had already, who was under indictment, had already had his place searched, had already done everything else, had gone out and created or made or found or scampered away with two machine guns and a suppressor. Oh, and by the way, he had uh, a whole bunch of illegal drugs, which were also illegal. I mean, again, criminals, by their very definition, break the law. There are so many gun laws out there that the average person could accidentally break one without even knowing it let alone criminals who have just decided to throw, you know, throw hands in the wind and just basically go, well, it is whatever. Gun control could not stop any of that. Any of that. Uh, and then there was a another, uh, then there was another article that talked about, uh, where is it? Which one is it? Um, there was another article that was interviewing some criminals talking about, you know, where'd you get this gun? Where I got it on the street. What well, you were felon in possession. I, I got it on the street. That reminds me of the whole John uh, Stossel interview with the people who were actually in prisons, asking them, how long would it take you after you leave jail? If you needed a firearm, how long would it take you to get one? About 90 minutes. That was the, the like 12 guys around him. 90 minutes. It's. It's it's just criminals are going to break the law, folks. That's just the way it is. One more gun law is not going to change the situation. One more gun law is not going to stop it. One more is not going to fix anything that's going on right now. That's the bottom line. All right. Uh, we got things to do, people to see, stuff to go. It is uh, the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow. Do all the YouTube things. Thank you for coming out. Uh, Willie Waffle, phone's buzzing. Up next, ready to go. Let's do it. Okay, it is the weekend already. Ooh, man, I love me. Can I have a three-day work week every week? That just sounds phenomenal. If I could have four days off and three-day work week, it'd make my life a lot better. Um, all right, but now that's fantasy, but, you know, it is what it is. Let's uh, jump into it. Uh, movies, entertainment, streaming, the news, all that stuff. All of it from our friend, Willie Waffle. Wafflemovies.com. Hello, my friend. How are you? 
Oh God, three day weekend would be or three day week would be perfect. Yeah, isn't that what we were promised back when we were wee little children? Right, and we heard about the computerization of America, and and we'd be so productive. We'd only have to work maybe three or four days a week. Yeah. What 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 happened, man? And then, then and then robotics came along, and that was going to do all the way all the jobs. And then, well, hell, let's go back to when computers. It's going to be the paperless office. We won't have any paper. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I got more paper now than ever. It's just like it's insane. It's crazy. It's uh, crazy. All right. Well, let's uh, dive right into it with uh, with the news. Um, we were talking about the writer strike, the actor strike, the whole thing. Everybody's striking, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, give yeah. me give me the rundown here. What's going on? Yeah, so so the the original deadline was June thirtieth, last Friday, and um, you know the the uh, the Screen Actors Guild and the and the uh, the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers um, decided they would extend the negotiations until July twelfth. And so uh, you know this is usually a good sign that they want to keep talking that. Maybe they're closer to a deal than anybody realizes. Um, but, you know, over the past couple of days, um, the word is starting to be now that they're, they're getting ready for a strike again. Oh, wow. And, uh, you, you know, and I think a lot of this is being driven. And th this is the part that gets me. OK, let, let, let's let's talk turkey. So last week, when it looked like the strike was just a couple of days away, some of the very, very famous actors in the Screen Actors Guild issued a letter to all the members talking about this is a historic moment. We have to have a groundbreaking deal. We need to go on strike to protect our futures. And it was signed by people like Meryl Streep, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, very rich actors who can afford to go on strike. Right. The rest of the crew is like, we'd like to get paid. We still got rent to <laughs> yeah. make. Right. You know, like one of them was Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I'm like, you mean Julia Louis-Dreyfus, whose family was the Dreyfus Fund? Yeah. I'm not making that up. No, That's real. No, exactly. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she was loaded before she became famous. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, hey, God love them. I mean, listen, I think that they do have a lot of really, really important things to fight for. And uh, yeah, you, this is going to be their only chance because if they don't do it now, they'll, they'll never get it in the future. And, and the business is turning and uh, we're, we're just not going to be making 24 episode seasons of television programs right. on broadcast television that then will go into syndication and make us millions and millions for the rest of our lives. So they, they realize they need more upfront money. They need they need better pay from the streaming from the streaming services. They need to have some protections when these streaming services maybe do like what they're going to do in the fall and start airing these things on 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 cable and on Netflix. Right. Uh, channels you know right so they have a lot that they need to protect i i totally get it and, well, and then the the all the housekeepers and and uh hotel staffs in uh, la joined them because they also want a pay increase and they're saying we're we're in sympathy with you guys <laughs> everybody's in sympathy everybody wants a pay increase i mean i'm sure it's gonna yeah. you know uh it's like the it's like the longshoremen unions where they were shutting down seattle and all these ports and now they've come to a deal. The first offer was 30% pay raise. That's not good enough. They wanted a 70% pay. I mean, it's just like, Oof. okay. I mean, there, wow. com there comes a, a point lot. It comes a point when you're like, um, maybe these companies are making a profit. Maybe they're not. But, you know, but I understand the actors and everything else because of deep fakes and the new AI stuff and all the stuff that they're doing yep. in some of these movies. It's, uh, you know, making them a little squidgy. Um, I mean, I'm concerned about, uh, as a voice actor, I'm concerned about AI 
voiceover because yeah uh, it's getting good it's not it's not like real people yet but you know give it another five years we could have a real problem kind of thing so anyway um and and the writers guild they are still on strike right so they're still holding out baby you know and and i think that their fate is tied to the actors if the actors make a deal it's going to be hard for the writers to keep holding out and uh you know and 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 the studios are going to say hey listen we made a deal with the directors. We made a deal with the actors. We're giving you something on par. And, uh, you know, you might want to take it because it ain't going to get better. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens with that. Um, Barbie, uh, the most American of <laughs> merchandised icons, is not being shown in Vietnam, which I'm sure just crushes yes. crushes the hopes and dreams of many Vietnamese. Uh, why? <laughs> God love him. Why well, is it not it, being it, shown in Vietnam? Well, it turns out Barbie is the most political movie of 2023. <laughs> so what's going on? And I've, I've seen I've seen the picture it, it is that during the movie, um, there is a point where Barbie is standing by a map of the world and it it uh, displays what is referred to as the nine dash line, right. which is a controversial uh, claimed by China over areas of the uh, South China Sea. It's heavily disputed by Vietnam. Uh, it was disallowed uh, internationally by the UN back in 2016, and China said, "Tough, we're still gonna we're still gonna consider that area ours." Right. And so, you know, not not only is Vietnam upset, uh, but the Philippines are also upset. Uh, you know, so <laughs> in this in this political dispute, Vietnam is proving to Barbie that you can't mess with us. Right. So Vietnam has banned the Barbie movie from showing in Vietnam, and and the bar. Let's be honest, the Barbie Barbie movie made a made a calculated decision. Do we want to get banned in Vietnam, or do we want to get banned in China, where there's like a few billion people yeah, who buy tickets? Exactly. This was strictly yeah. a money move more than anything else. It's an appeasement yeah, move. And which it is, is sad. And, and I got to be honest with you, I counted the line. I think it only had eight dashes. So, you know, it's just it's the idea that is the representation of this of this border that is in dispute that is just right. fuming everybody. Well, um, fuming everybody. like I said, I'm sure there's many Vietnamese who are greatly disappointed. Speaking well, of... And you know who else is disappointed? <laughs> who? Senator Ted Cruz. That's right. Ted Cruz is mad at them as well. I mean, it, but he was He's just... He's mad too. He was just looking for something to be mad about, that guy, I tell you what. All right. <laughs> That's right. He's like... Here's something I could talk about that might make the news. Here we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Ted. Um, speaking of disappointed, uh, animated Barney, the new movie, the reboot, whatever it is, <laughs> is not actually being made for kids. It's actually catering to millennials who grew up on Barney. So it's an adult. Bar- I mean, I what? I mean, come on. You know, this is one of those moments where either everybody at the studio has lost their minds or this one guy is going to get fired. Okay, so what happened was, uh, you know, the toy company Mattel, they now have a film division. It is run by uh, Kevin McKeon, who was doing interviews uh, like over the past weekend and said, hey, listen, right. you know, everybody, everybody get ready for our animated Barney movie because it's really not going to be made with a kid angle, but more of a A24 angle, which is a, a, a art house studio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and the idea that it's going to be about millennial angst and the trials and tribulation of being in your 30s and growing up with Barney and all those beliefs that are getting shattered. And I'm thinking, what, what's wrong with you? 
Like, wow. who, who's going to that movie, dude? Yeah, I know. Seriously. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, he's he's got to get fired. I mean, if you're going to reboot Barney, you're rebooting Barney for the kids of those people. And so now you get them both, right? You get the nostalgia among the millennials. You get the little kids who get to enjoy Barney and you sell twice the stuff. Right. But no, no. we're, we're going to make it the we're going to try to make it the Oscar contender version of Barney, which is not going to work out. Yeah, the edgy version. <laughs> this is Barney, the edgy edition kind of thing. Edge, oh, edge Lord Barney. That's what it's all about. All right. Um, well, let's move on to the movies. Uh, I do want to talk about insidious my wife is a huge insidious fan of that whole insidious franchise and uh it's an attempt to end the franchise or what's so what's going on give me the give me the fill here yeah so you know that the franchise has been kind of a hodgepodge i mean this is like the fifth insidious movie but it's only the third one with the main characters the other two were kind of like a prequel and things like that they're going to have an insidious spinoff uh with mandy moore that's coming out soon so this is supposed to end the story that Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne started in the first Insidious show. This guy who can go into the further and can tr- confront the demons and, and the life that's out there. And uh, here, uh, Patrick Wilson is now the director of this movie, so he's not in it as much. It focuses in on his kid, Ty Simpkins, who, you know, is is in college now and right. it has it doesn't have a great relationship with dad anymore and and he's getting in touch with his feelings and he's going deeper into the further and he's being beckoned to open the red door and dude he can't handle what's behind the red door and dad's <laughs> gonna have to try to help him handle what's behind the red door and and that's when the scares begin right, right. that's when you start you, you start holding onto your underpants before you jump out of them yeah. that's the hope and that's the dream and listen and they've got some of that in here uh, you know i honestly i think the best sequence is one of the earliest sequences with with patrick wilson Fr- frankly the one you've been seeing in all the tv commercials you know but well uh, i think it's know, a, I, I think oh i say i say i think it's no. interesting because the first since i mean this was a this was a scary movie i mean it was very good i'm not much yeah. of a, i'm not much of a horror fan but this wasn't like it was bloody or anything it was just very scary it was shocking it had some of these be like what just happened you know and it just it's it's good it's got some really good scares in it um does this uh, live up to the potential of the franchise it's, it's got some of that but it's being so dragged down by the kid who's, who's just not a great actor and he's kind of boring and he's not very compelling and you don't you, you're kind of like man let let the demons take him away I oh mean, wow maybe that would make it a more interesting movie uh you know i'm 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 at one waffle i just oh, i can't take it that's this too is bad. just not great not great at all well terry will be disappointed yeah. but she thinks you're crazy sometimes too she still thinks crimson that's peak true. is a three mo- three waffle movie for sure <laughs> and you're like one and a half so she thinks you know willie doesn't know horror so anyway uh let's go on to joyride Yes. So this is your your new your new gal pal movie for for lack of a better term. And I don't right. mean it derisively. I, I mean it in a positive way. Uh, it's it's the story of uh, four friends uh, led by Ashley Park, uh, who's off to China. She's uh, told her law firm that, oh, yeah, she speaks fluent Mandarin. She can go to China and then and, and close the deal with the clients. And she can't. So now she's got to bring her friend who is and a couple other friends uh, come along. And while she's over there, she decides that because she was adopted, she wants to try to find her birth mother. 
And so the four go off on a wild adventure to try to find the mother. And when I say wild, I'm saying wild and raunchy, baby. This movie wants to be Bridesmaids. It wants to be uh, The Hangover. And, and it achieves that in a lot of ways because it is raunchy. That is the word when everybody talks about this movie, raunchy. And that's what you're going to get. And, it, and it's funny. And I think that one of the reasons it works is because, you know, I think there are too many times where we want a movie to be outrageous, like the Jennifer Lawrence movie a couple weeks ago. Right. And they pull their punch and they don't go all the way. This movie goes all the way. But it also still finds moments to deliver some heart, deliver some soul, deliver a little bit of tender moments between them. I, I think it gets a little bit rushed. I, th I think that they really could have just focused on that search and not thrown in all the other stuff. I'm at two and a half waffles. And, of course, this is from the writer of of Crazy Rich Asians, right? Which is a pretty big yes. thing. Yeah. So the yep, Dick... and, you know. Go ahead. Yeah, it's Stephanie uh, Stephanie Shu, who uh, who was an Oscar nominee for uh, you know everything, everywhere, all at once, is in here. Uh, you know she's very good. Uh, so yeah, you've got a lot of a lot of people who have worked on on a lot of movies together uh, that that have now gotten this chance to really kind of roll this out and are, are making the most of it. All right, well, good. All right, let's move on to the last one here. We got uh, about ninety seconds. Um, the Dial of Destiny, Indiana Jones. 15 whatever it is give it to me oh you're breaking my heart indiana jones. Uh, oh no and that's that's the way to go i you know uh we we find indy is is separated from his wife well his son is not in his life anymore he's living in a dump of an apartment in like brooklyn or somewhere in new york in 1969 and he gets visited by his godchild who reminds him about the dial of destiny that he and that he and her father had uh, had studied and wanted to protect, wanted to protect from the Nazis they took it from during the war, oh. and uh, well now the Nazi is back and wants it and only Indy can stop them. Nazis, I hate these guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, my wife said I think I'd like to watch it just for Mads Mikkelsen uh, because he's such a good bad guy, but you're you're acting like this is a snoozer. It was so boring and so dull. It didn't have any of the life and the fun and the excitement that those Indiana Jones movies used to have. I, I'm even gonna go out on a limb. I think it's I think it's even worse than the last one that everybody hated. Oh man. Oh, that's too bad. Well, everybody's cashing in the cha-ching paycheck, and I guess that's it. I guess the dial of destiny becomes the dial for dollars. That's what it's all about. Willie Waffle, WaffleMovies.com. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you, and we will talk with you next week about Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible 17. Uh, all right, folks, we're out of time. We will see you Monday. Sarah Montalbano, our guest from the Alaska Policy Forum. Yeah, I mean, we were going to talk about inadvertently dropped you the bombshell that I was going to be off on Friday, and so, but I asked you to text me how it was, and your text <laughs> yes. was... So dis if it had been nothing but uh, poopy emojis, it probably would have been better than the text you sent me. Um, you were just, just you were disappointed. It, it broke my heart. I mean, like, you know, Harrison Ford, God love him. He's 80 and he's out there doing this stuff. He shouldn't be doing this stuff at 80. Uh, you know, and listen, it, it, hey, I'm not one to pass judgment. If he can do it and he wants to do it, good for him. But, you know, I, I just felt that, you know, he really was trying to bring out, I think, too much of the character's disengagement with the world and the character's depression to where we weren't having fun on this adventure we weren't 
you know, we weren't excited with what was going on. And, and his only really great moments in my mind were really the moments where he kind of finds the drama to explain what's happened in his life and, and how right. he ended up there and what, what's happened to his son, what's happened to his wife. And those, those are great moments, but those are not a movie make. And, and that's why, you know, we just see them kind of rolling from, you know, chase scene to chase scene to chase scene with, without a lot of other stuff going on. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and frankly, towards the end, it becomes just incredibly preposterous. Oh, well, that's too bad. All right. Well, uh, we didn't say how many negative one to wa- four waffles were you at? <sighs> I'm at like one and a half. I just. You're just giving you it know, a half of nostalgia like steak, aren't you? I think so. I think so. I think it's just, you know, I respect you too much, Harrison, to, to just totally blow you out of the water. To man. give you half a waffle, basically. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. That's sad. All right. Well, Willie, thanks so much. Looking forward to Mission Impossible. We will talk to you next week, my friend. All right. Talk to you then. All right, folks. Got to go. Montalbano Monday. We'll see you there. Have a great weekend. shed our terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show